0: I'm Leslie Sultan. I'm an estate planning attorney. And on this podcast, my guests and I discuss topics that help make it easy for you, the listener, to understand estate planning. We break down complex legal concepts into everyday situations so you can understand the whys and how to protect and build intergenerational wealth. We call it the legacy purse because after all, estate planning is a gift you leave your loved ones.
1: So many people are under the misconception that if you have a will, you simply follow the will. And that is just not the case. The mere fact that someone has a will doesn't mean anything. That will needs to be probated. Probated basically coming from Latin to mean proven. It has to be proven to be the legitimate document of the decedent, the decedent being the person that died.
0: Today we are going to talk about a legal court process known as probate. To help talk about the probate process, I've invited attorney Andrea M. Arrigo to join me today. Andrea is a cum laude of Fairfield University and graduated on the Dean's List in 2003 from St. John's School of Law. In early 2019, Andrea was sworn into the U.S. Supreme Court, a ceremony necessary to be able to argue cases there. She runs her law practice in Brooklyn, New York, and serves clients in the areas of real estate, probate, and personal injury. Andrea, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Leslie. I have to say I'm very excited to be here.
0: Well, I know that you work as a solo practitioner with an office in Brooklyn where you handle real estate transactions and estate matters. In fact, we met at a closing. I would really appreciate if you would tell our listeners how long you've been handling estate proceedings in court.
1: Well, Leslie, I've been practicing for approximately 17 years now in basically the five boroughs of New York, although I do handle some matters in the outside boroughs. I started my own practice in 2008 in Diker Heights, Brooklyn, and I primarily deal with clients that come mainly from Brooklyn and Staten Island.
0: Awesome. If you could walk us through, please, the probate process and, of course, the process if someone dies without a will.
1: So many people are under the misconception that if you have a will, you simply follow the will, and that is just not the case. The mere fact that someone has a will doesn't mean anything. That will needs to be probated, probated basically coming from Latin to mean proven. It has to be proven to be the legitimate document of the decedent, the decedent being the person that died.
0: If we have a scenario where mom dies, she has a will, she leaves a house and her children, can you give us a rough estimate of the time frame it would take from death until sale of the house? that the probate process would take? So basically what I tell
1: my clients in the beginning is that you have to think of the way in which people own property, okay? They own it in two ways. It's either probate property, meaning it goes through the courts and in accordance with the will, or non-probate property, meaning it falls outside of the will and transfers by operation of law. The executor is only handling assets that fall under the probate proceeding, meaning assets that are solely in the individual decedent's name. No joint owner, no beneficiary on an account, no beneficiary on a life insurance policy, any real property that was solely owned by that person. Those are the assets that fall under the executor's authority and fall basically under the will. So at that point, after the executor gets appointed, Then they have the ability and the duty to now gather all those assets and make a decision as to whether they're going to liquidate those assets. So the $50,000 in a Citibank account gets liquidated. The $100,000 mutual fund, we make a decision. Are we liquidating it or are we keeping it? The house, are we selling it or are we keeping it? Generally, in most instances, everything's getting liquidated and kind of pooled together and then put in an estate bank account, Okay. When everything gets pulled together, then we have this figure, this number, that's the gross value of the estate. And the executor has the authority to make those decisions. Are we going to sell the house? Are we going to liquidate? Are we going to gather assets? Are we going to give the couch to goodwill? And things like that in terms of the personal property of the deceased, Depending, of course, what the will says. If the will says, I leave the house to Jenny, then Jenny gets the house, or at the very least, the executor can sell the house, and then Jenny gets the proceeds of the house. But in addition to gathering the assets, the executor also has a duty to ensure that all creditors are paid. So if there are any creditors that they know about, such as a credit card or an outstanding last nursing home bill or a mortgage on the property, those things need to be paid out first before any distributions can be made. And generally, I advise all my executors that they should wait for seven months from the time they're appointed by the court until they start actually distributing the funds to the distributees. You say, where are you getting your seven months? That seems like such an arbitrary number. Well, the seven months is the period of time in which a creditor has the right to file a claim against the estate. So you have seven months to come in and say, hey, Jenny bought furniture at Raymore and Flanagan and opened up a credit card, and we want that money back. And now they file a claim and you can either dispute the claim, maybe it's not accurate, decide if you're going to negotiate the claim or actually pay the claim out. And so it's a whole process. Eventually, the goal is to get all the assets liquidated and distributed to the beneficiaries, who, by the way, are probably calling monthly saying, where's my money? And you have to tell them it's time to chill out and wait and let the process happen as it needs to happen. But the goal eventually is to get the executor released. So once everything's done and the house is sold and the assets are liquidated, I then uh, prepare what's called an informal accounting. It's basically a document that tells the beneficiaries all of the money that came in and all of the money that came out. So $100,000 came in and we had to reimburse Johnny because he paid for the funeral $10,000 and we had to pay the attorney and they got paid and we had to reimburse the attorney for the disbursements and that got paid. And there was a couple of last-minute bills in connection with the house, and that got paid, and the mortgage got paid, and now we're left with X, and X is getting distributed amongst the beneficiaries in accordance with what the will says. That accounting obviously gets reviewed by the executor, and then it gets forwarded to all of the beneficiaries under the will. They get to review it, look at it, and say, yes, I agree. I think this is good, and I'm going to sign off, and I am going to release you from liability, you did not run off to Costa Rica and spend all mom's money, you did the right thing, you paid who you needed to pay, and we're good. And then those releases get filed with the court and basically finalize and say, Mr. Executor, you're off the hook, you did your job. It's a lot from beginning to end, and it seems like a lot, but if you take it step by step along the way, then we can handle it one by one. And obviously, depending on the situation, there are nuances with every single case and other things that come up along the way. And of course, we haven't even discussed any kind of tax consequences or tax liability.
0: Yeah, give my listeners an idea of what it would cost them to go through this probate process.
1: So it is difficult to to also discuss costs because again, every single situation is different and, it, and there are nuances in every situation and different things that come up. Um, I generally give my clients different arrangements and different free options depending upon what works for them. I either charge an hourly fee, which means as I bill my time accordingly and they pay me whether it be on a monthly or a bi-monthly schedule, or I charge a percentage of the gross value of the estate, or depending upon what needs to be done, sometimes it will just be a flat fee. I've found that most individuals that are coming to me don't necessarily have the money to pay for an attorney on an hourly basis. They're waiting for the money that's tied up in the estate. And so they generally pick the percentage value or the flat fee value, understanding that there may be a little bit of a premium for that because I'm now, I'm also waiting a year or, you know, six months to a year to get paid. Um, but I work with them and, and all of my clients have been pretty, pretty happy. I mean, I always obviously have to take an initial routine or upfront, that ranges anywhere from, you know, fifteen hundred thousand. I mean, excuse me, fifteen hundred to thirty five hundred, depending upon the work that's going to be involved. And more recently, I have been starting to take the initial petition filing fee, which is the filing fee that has to get paid with the court. That is based on the value of the estate. Um, I, I've changed that recently, just for for numerous different reasons, and, and not wanting to have to lay that out initially. But then I'll take a lesser retainer upfront a lot of people get nervous and they think that they are going to be personally responsible for that cost. And generally in every will, one of the first paragraphs we see is that all administration costs come off the top. So it's not that the executor is liable for the fee. The fee comes from the estate. So eventually it gets born among the beneficiaries, but the executor is not liable for the fee, nor is the executor liable for the creditors. And that's something that oftentimes people are worried about. Um, the executor is only acting in a fiduciary capacity. And if there's only a $50,000 estate and there's a $100,000 credit card bill, the executor is not you know, responsible for the additional
0: $50,000. Just so we're clear, if somebody dies without a will, the process is similar?
1: Yes. Generally speaking, the process is very similar. I'll go through a couple of the differences so that your audience can understand. First off, the difference is when someone dies without a will, that's called an administration proceeding. When someone dies with a will, that is a probate proceeding. An administration proceeding is basically a proceeding saying somebody died without a will. And in that instance, I get so many people questioning me and saying, My mom didn't have a will. Is the money just going to go to the state? Is that what's going to happen? No. Luckily, the New York State legislature has enacted rules and says where the money goes if someone dies without a will. Now, not everybody may agree with what the legislature has said in terms of how the money gets distributed, but generally speaking, I think it does a good job in following what most people's wishes would be. So I'll give you an example. Mom and dad are married. Dad died. Mom is the second to die, and she has two children, okay? So now we have a widow, two children. In that circumstance, the two children split the estate equally, which is probably with many people's wishes would be under a will, okay? If the husband is still alive, so it's the husband and the two children, the first 50000 goes to the husband, And the rest gets split equally, one half to the husband and one half to the children living. Now, again, we have to remember what I spoke about earlier. It's only those assets that are solely in mom's name. So, in all likelihood, mom and dad had joint bank accounts, probably owned the house together. Those things transfer by operation of law and an administration proceeding may not necessarily be necessary. It really depends upon the assets and how the assets are held, which will dictate whether or not a proceeding actually has to occur. And assuming a proceeding does have to occur, then it's the same thing. The administrator, instead of the executor, is the one who hires me. And then they file the petition, and they get the court to appoint them, and then an administrator is appointed, and then everything kind of follows suit. Except rather than it following a will, in terms of how the assets get distributed, it just follows state law, in terms of the priority of who gets what. And the only difference would be the administrator also has priority. And that's also dictated by law on who can be the administrator. Whereas in a will, the person who wrote the will can pick anybody they want to be the executor. Whereas in an administration proceeding, the law dictates spouse has priority of right number one. If there is no spouse, then it's the children. If the children are deceased, then it's the grandchildren or so on and so forth, depending upon the circumstances.
0: Okay, this is a great segue into my favorite part of the podcast, which is the nightmare estate stories. And you have so much experience with litigation, so many years of doing this, that I would love to hear um, some of your nightmare stories that you could share with our listeners.
1: So it's funny that you should talk about nightmare, because I'm actually semi in the midst of one. And just kind of finished it and it and it crosses over a couple of different areas of my practice. So it it may take a little time, but I, I think people will get the gist of what's going on. Basically there were four siblings that owned a home, three of whom were never married. One of whom was married and eventually the house was owned by A, B, C, and D and D's husband. D and D's husband die and by operation of law their daughter basically inherited that house. There was no will. We didn't have to do an administration proceeding because real property transfers by operation of law to the next of kin. She was the only child. And so ultimately she ended up with the house, with the quarter of the house, I should say. So now we have A, B, C, and E, if you will, the niece of A, B, and C as the owners of the house. And A dies. A dies with a will. And that's how I kind of got involved. E, the niece, was the executor named in the will. And so I petition the court, I get her appointed, she is appointed, and now she has to make a decision of what are we doing? Well, the decedent only owned 25% of the house, she owned 25% of the house, and the aunt and uncle owned 25% each, and they were still alive and they were living in the house. And they, have, by the way, there was a reverse mortgage on the house. So, and the aunt and uncle were elderly in their 80s, if not 90s. And so she didn't want to sell the house and kick them out. It was always the intention that this house was going to be there until they were no longer alive. So we kind of just sat on it. She was appointed and we didn't do anything. We didn't do any transfers. B and C continued to live in the house. The reverse mortgage kept coming out. B and C were living on that and all was good for a couple of years. As B and C were getting older and older and older. Unfortunately, in the midst of all of this, the niece actually passed away. And the niece, as you know, was appointed executor of the uncle's estate. The niece was married and had children and lived in Connecticut. So we had to do a proceeding in Connecticut for her husband to be appointed executor of her will in Connecticut, okay? In her will, she left her share of the house to the her two children. In New York, we had to do what's called an ancillary proceeding because there was property in New York that she owned. So after the husband was appointed in Connecticut, we then do a a proceeding in New York whereby the husband now gets appointed as the ancillary executor of her estate in New York. So now we have that proceeding of his estate, but now we still have the uncle that she was the executor of. Then we have to move go back and look at his will and see who his successor executor is. That's basically second in charge. That happened to be the niece's son, the great nephew. So then I get retained by him, and we do a proceeding to have a successor executor appointed. So now he's the successor executor of the uncle, the husband is the executor of the aunt, and we still have B and C alive, continuing to get older and older and older. The nephew gets to the point where they're very old. The house is becoming dilapidated. He wants to get them closer to them. He also has power of attorney. They have wills, the whatnot. They get moved to be closer to him. And we enter into a contract of sale for the house. As successor executor and as ancillary executor, being still still alive, they are 97 and 101. 101. In the midst of our contract, unfortunately, one of them died. And so that put the entire contract on hold in the midst of COVID. And I had to do emergency letters to get the nephew who was the executor in Beeswell appointed. And luckily the court, the Kings County Surrogate did a great job. They They, they looked at my letter my request for urgency and I did get him appointed fairly quickly although there were a lot of nuances with that because it was a Connecticut resident at the time and so we had to get a New York State tax affidavit waiver and things but it eventually got done and we actually did not lose the real estate deal and the transaction closed on Monday and so I was very excited that we were able to do that. And, and that was a situation where there was a lot of moving pieces and a lot of moving parts. And we just, you know, we needed to get this, this house sold because the bills were racking up, the real estate taxes weren't being paid, the reverse mortgage was getting higher and higher, and and we just needed to get rid of it. And and so that, that was probably my most newest nightmare story, if you will.
0: I feel like you're part of their family now. <laughs> wow. Of course, if we're gonna share a nightmare story, I would love to hear a success story um, that you've experienced that helped people through the probate process.
1: So with success stories, it's it's a little bit different because obviously I'm dealing with people really on their on their worst day. They just lost a loved one and they're emotional and they're upset and they don't know what they're gonna do next and how they're gonna go about the whole process. And so for me, the success is really in every case in just trying to close it up and make it as seamless as possible for the clients. We're going to get to the end eventually. You just got to stick with me and go through each thing one by one and listen to the advice that I'm giving you and follow what I'm saying and we'll make it through and we'll make it as clean as possible. And so for me, any estate that I can get closed out in under a year is really a success and that, and that, Does't necessarily always happen. and certainly now with covid it's it's very, very different scenario. as things get better, we will continue to be able to improve and things will you know continue to get better and we'll move faster.
0: Let's talk about trusts. I am a firm believer in helping keep people out of court, out of the probate process whenever possible by in, advising a client to create a trust, assuming it's in their best interest. I know you are a little skeptical about trusts, so please share with our listeners your hesitancy with regards to trust in estate planning.
1: Yes, Leslie. It's, it's not that I am necessarily against trusts. I certainly think that they are a very useful tool In numerous circumstances but it's a tool that needs to be utilized properly so that it can get the consequence and the effect that you want and the problem that I see so many times is that people have a trust drafted and they never fund the trust and so the trust is just a legal document saying where you want your assets to go or what you want to happen it doesn't necessarily say what the trust owns, you actually have to transfer ownership and have the trust now own the property. So if you want to put the house that you live in into the trust, the property needs to get transferred so that the trust can own it. Similarly, if you want to change bank accounts and have the bank accounts owned by the trust, that all needs to be done with, whether it be your financial planner or the bank or whatnot. And what I find so many times is that they start this trust and they fund the trust and they fund the trust with almost everything except they forget one thing. And if they forget to fund it one thing and they still own something solely in their name, then we're just back to the whole probate and administration proceeding anyway. And so generally, most people are doing a trust to avoid probate. To not have to do the whole first part that we said, to basically have the trust govern and the trust just says, as a matter of law, where everything goes upon somebody's passing. Um, Or if it's a revocable trust, it becomes an irrevocable trust upon death or depending on what kind of trust it is. The problem that I so oftentimes see is that the trust is not fully funded. And so they're back to me anyway. And not only are they back to me, they're now back to me with a trust That's saying A, B, and C and a will that God willing is saying the same thing, that there's not a discrepancy and we have to probate the trust anyway. And then we have to administer the, excuse me, probate the will anyway. And then we have to administer the trust. And so they're in the same position. So the the biggest thing that I can tell all clients and all listeners, especially when your parents go to the attorneys and the attorneys do the trusts for them, you have to make sure that the trust is funded If that's what you want, because if the trust is not completely funded, it makes no difference that you have a trust.
0: And I do think it's a little bit incumbent on the listener or the client to, to make that request of the attorney and say, are you going to help us with the funding process? Is that included as part of the fee? Do we pay you extra for that? And if the attorney's offering to pay to do that as an additional fee, and you're willing to pay that, definitely take the attorney up on that option because the attorneys do that. They know how to do it, they know how to do it efficiently and effectively. Um, and that's going to ensure that your trust is properly funded. Um, and unfortunately, I too have heard those stories where attorneys are just sort of selling this package of a trust idea and then not holding the, att- the client's hands with getting them through the, the funding process. They'll just transfer the deed and then say, okay, go do this yourself call us if you have any questions and it, it requires a level of diligence on the part of the client to say, what did she say? What was I supposed to do? Let me go back to her. And some people I think don't want to bother, you know, again, attorneys don't respond to phone calls. So it really, you know, again, starts with that good relationship with the attorney feeling like they'll respond to you. They'll, re- they'll return your calls. They'll respond to emails and asking these questions because if they're not going to do that for you, maybe they're not the right attorney for you. As we start wrapping up, Andrea, can you share with our audience some of your favorite free tools or resources that they can check out? Maybe some books, documentaries, YouTube channels, anything that you think our listeners can do after they listen today to get more information.
1: You know, Leslie, in terms of tools, it's hard for me to say what I use because I have a lot of things at my access that the normal layperson wouldn't necessarily have. But a lot of questions that I get have to do with deeds and having to learn who the owner of a property is. So I actually use ACRIS, which is a system generated by the city where you can pull up a deed and see um, who the owner is or the last owner of record, whether there's a mortgage on that property. And that tends to be a very useful link for a lot of people.
0: Great. And we will make sure to include all of the ways that listeners can contact you in our podcast notes. Andrea, thank you for coming out and being on The Legacy Purse to speak about your work and the state administration probate process. And we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. The Legacy Purse was brought to you by Sultan Attorney in New York and produced and edited by Xavier Mejia in Los Angeles. You can support our podcast by liking this episode and subscribing to it. You can also support us by rating this podcast in your app and by following us on social media at Sultan Attorney. For more information on this episode, visit LegacyPurse.com.